Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started in Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, and we'll do this chapter in two parts. So tonight we'll read verses 1 to 22, and then we'll pick up next week and do the rest of the chapter. Matthew chapter 21, These are um, this is when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and all of this is leading up into the final days, the final week of His life before His death and then His resurrection, okay? So Matthew chapter 21, <clears throat> we'll start in verse 1. It says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt uh, with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately He will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the tree and spreading them in the road. The crowd going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read, Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, and Lord, to open your word. And Lord, we do pray that, uh, Lord, you would feed us tonight uh, from the scriptures. Lord, that you would grant to us the very bread of life that has come down out of heaven. Lord, that might nourish our souls. Lord, help us as well to, uh, Lord, in hearing and in learning, Lord, that we would not... Uh, merely store these facts in a deposit in our mind, but rather, Lord, that these things would be learned within our heart, Lord, in a practical way, that we might apply these very truths, Lord, to our lives and to our soul, Lord, that it might build us up in our faith, and Lord, cause us to walk in your ways and to be obedient to you. So, Lord, we pray that uh, our hearing would be accompanied with faith and with obedience, Lord, with careful inquiry into your word. And Father, we pray that you would bless our time together tonight. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so here we are in chapter 21, where Jesus is coming into uh, Jerusalem in this very triumphant way. Then also there is His going into the temple uh, and dealing with what is going on there, both uh, the rejection of what is false and the establishment of what is true and good there in the temple. And then you have at the end this cursing of the fig tree, which is a symbol or an emblem of what the nation of Israel was like and also what we might be like if we are not careful to make sure that we are hearing properly and that uh, we are bearing the fruits in keeping with repentance. So let's begin there in verse 1, the triumphal entry of Christ. It says that when they approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Here, Jesus, when he is about to enter into Jerusalem this last time, he is going to do so in a way that is consistent with what the prophets had foretold, right? These things are necessary in order that the prophets might be accomplished or might be fulfilled in the way that Jesus is coming into the city. And it was foretold uh, by Zechariah that when the king would come, he would come in this way. And so Jesus, aware of these things, and also knowing that the time of his departure has come, is going to enter into Jerusalem in this way. But for him to do so, he needs to have a donkey and the colt uh, that would be with it. And this is the way that he's going to then come into the city. So he sends his disciples ahead of him to go into the village and to find there a donkey with its colt to bring them both there to him. And then he's going to ride on this colt into the city of Jerusalem in order to fulfill the prophecy from, Isaiah, uh, from Zechariah. And he tells them, if anyone says anything to you, Right, the owners of the donkey, seeing these strange men, seeing these people come and untie their donkey and take them away, and they're going to ask, well, what is going on? Then they are to tell them that the Lord has need of it, and that will be sufficient to satisfy the owner, to give them the release or the permission to take it, and then everything will be fine. And in no way is this theft, right? It's not theft because of Psalm 24. Psalm 24 Verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. The earth belongs to the Lord, and everything that it contains belongs to the Lord. So if Jesus wants to use a donkey for His own glory, then as the Lord Himself, and that's why He says the Lord has need of it, then He has the right to use whatever He pleases. And no one can say, you're stealing from me or you're defrauding me because all of it belongs to Him anyway. We have it on loan from Him. So it is His, but also, they're also asking permission. right? When they say, the Lord has need of it, this is the way in which they are going to satisfy the owner, and then inevitably it will be returned to them as well. Okay, So everything is above board. There's nothing that is suspicious, nothing that is out of line in the way that Jesus is doing this, and it's necessary in order to fulfill Scripture. Then that's what it says in verse 4. This then took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. If we go to Zechariah chapter 9, Zechariah chapter 9, we have this prophecy 
here concerning the Messiah. And this was interpreted by the Jews to be a messianic passage, right? That this would have its fulfillment in the Messiah or the Christ, the anointed one, the son of David, the one who was coming in the name of the Lord to deliver the people, right? To bring salvation and deliverance to the people of Israel. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations. His dominion will be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here, this king is no doubt referring to the king of kings, the descendant of David promised who would have an eternal kingdom and who would rule over the entire world, right? Because his kingdom is described in verse 10 as being a dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth, which would mean the whole world. And which of David's descendants, David, Solomon, Josiah, none of them ever ruled in this way. None of them possessed or ruled over the entire world. But this king who's coming in the name of the Lord the one who is just and endowed with salvation. He's coming to bring salvation. He's righteous and he's bringing salvation for his people and he will rule over the whole world and there will be peace. Peace to the nations through the spread of the gospel and the salvation that he will bring. So this obviously has reference to the Christ. To the Christ and Jesus is fulfilling this very passage when he enters into Jerusalem. The people know about this, and this is why he is doing these things. It's necessary for the scripture to be fulfilled. And he's coming here on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He is gentle. He's mounted on a donkey. So though he is a king, and he's riding on a donkey the way that a king would, he's not riding on a war horse. He's not riding on an elephant, a war elephant, because they had those as well. Right? But he's coming on an animal that is considered to be a lowly, a gentle, a humble animal. And him doing this is intentional because what kind of a king is Christ? Is he one that lords it over his people? Is he one who seeks to put himself up and put everyone else down? Well, he's already told us that this is not the way that he is, nor is it the way that his disciples are to be. We remember last week in chapter 20. In chapter 20, verse 25, it says, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." Jesus did not come like the kings of the earth who rule over them, who lord it over them, who exercise authority over them in a way that elevates them and puts the others down. And this is why people wanted to ride on these great war horses or these great types of animals in order to show their greatness as a testimony of their splendor and of their majesty and of their exaltation. 
Yet Jesus comes, He comes in the way of a king riding on an animal, but the animal He chooses is one that is associated with humility, with lowliness, with gentleness in this way, because this is the nature of His kingdom. He is meek, He is mild, He is lowly, He is gentle in this way. This is what He said concerning Himself in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, 28 through 30. says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the way Christ is with His people. He is humble. He is gentle in His heart. He is this way toward us. And here, He manifests this in the, His entry into Jerusalem, the way that he comes in. Verse 6, The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Here the disciples went, and just as Jesus had instructed them, so they found. Here showing the sovereignty of Christ, his omniscience, his knowledge of all things, he told them exactly what they would find in the village and what they found. What he said is exactly what they found. The owners did ask them, what are you doing? And they told them, the Lord has need of it. And then everything was good and fine. So they went, they found it just as he had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. This to uh, show their devotion to Christ, right? That he wouldn't uh, set there on the bare animal, but they put their coats there as a sign of their humility and their subjugation to Christ. And then also the people, the crowds that were going ahead of him, they were spreading their coats on the road and cutting branches from the tree, spreading them on the road. This again, a sign of their devotion and humility in that they don't even want not only the foot of Christ to touch the road, but even the animal that he's riding on to touch the road, but rather to step on their coats, to step on their coats in these branches as a way of showing their love, their adoration, their respect, their, their desire to honor him and be subjected to Christ. Then verse 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The crowds that are going and accompanying him as he's coming into Jerusalem, they are shouting in this way. Now, they're aware of these psalms and these prophecies concerning the Christ, the Messiah, because it has reference to the son of David. And son of David can no doubt mean the Christ, right? This is the way that they mean it. They understand that God made a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to David that one of his descendants who would come from his flesh, that he would give to him an eternal kingdom, that he would sit on his throne forever, and that this person, Jesus of Nazareth, is this promised Christ, this promised son of David, who has come in the name of the Lord, and they are praising God, blessing God, because of what God is doing in their midst, of what they see being revealed there in their very presence, that the Christ has come, he is entering into Jerusalem. He is coming in the way that was prophesied by the prophet Zechariah. And so they are praising and blessing God for what has happened. Because He has come, not in His own name, 
but in the name of the Lord. This is from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 14 to 29, but 26 is the verse that is quoted here. But we'll read 14 to 29, and really the whole psalm. The whole of the psalm is having reference to Christ, and you'll notice a couple of other verses that are quoted in the New Testament in reference to Christ. Psalm 118.14, The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. The sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die, but live, and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but He has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting." There, you notice the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This in reference to Christ. Also, this is the day that the Lord has made, which is the day of resurrection. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And here in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, who is this one? Who is this stone that the builders rejected? Who is this one who comes in the name of the Lord, who brings salvation that God has not given over to death? meaning permanently. Yes, He gave Him over to death temporarily, but not permanently. He conquered death through His resurrection from the dead. And now the gates of righteousness are opened up, and Christ is the one who has entered into the kingdom of God. And then who does He lead with Him? He leads all of us. He is the doorway by which we enter into the kingdom of God. He has become our salvation. Now, there's no way that this can refer to anyone else. It cannot refer to David or Solomon or any of David's children. It cannot refer to any of the prophets, but it only can refer to the Christ. And this is why the people are saying this. They understand and know that this psalm is being fulfilled in their midst, in the person of Christ who is coming in the name of the Lord, who is himself the son of David, who has come in the name of the Lord and is the one who will bring salvation to God's people. Then verse 10. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Here, when he enters into Jerusalem, this has caused quite the stir, right? They're coming from an area, from Galilee, from this region, and they're entering into Jerusalem with all of these people shouting in this way. And when this happens, this commotion, 
the rest of the city is wondering what is going on, right? They're all stirred about this and wondering who is this person, right? That all of these things are being said concerning him. Now, we have to understand as well that during this time of the Passover, Jerusalem would swell with many people, many visitors from various parts, even of the Roman Empire, not just various parts of Israel, though many of them would come, but even many people spread throughout the Roman Empire who were there. And we know that from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 in the day of Pentecost, whenever uh, Peter and the other apostles are speaking in tongues, the crowd is amazed because each of them hears somebody speaking in their own native language or their own native tongue. And they're from all various parts of the Roman Empire that speak these various languages. So there's likely then many people who are in Jerusalem who don't know about what has been going on. At least they don't know all of the details, as would those who live there more locally in that region. People who are from other parts of the empire who are there and who are wondering, who is this, right? What is going on here in Jerusalem concerning this person? And so they're wondering and they're asking, why is this taking place and what does this have to do with? And they tell him, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, that they are affirming that he is the prophet Jesus. Now, if we go to Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18, if these ones who are giving this testimony concerning Christ are true believers, then this is what they would mean. Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19, and this passage will also come up again on Sunday in our teaching from Hebrews chapter 3. Jesus being the apostle, the, the one sent by God here that is referred to in Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 19. Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire any more, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. And it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So there, this prophet, which is spoken of by Moses, right? And this cannot be true of any of the other prophets. None of the other prophets were like Moses in this way. But this one will come who will be like Moses in that he will deliver to them the full final word of God. He will be God in human flesh, and actually he will be superior to Moses. And Moses is himself commending this prophet to the people, right? To the people, putting them in expectation of his being revealed, just as it was put in expectation of them to look for the son of David, right? The one who would be the king. And certainly all of these types find their fulfillment in one person, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He being the prophet that was predicted by Moses, and he also being the king that was predicted in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and then also him being the high priest. Prophet, priest, and king all found in one individual, one person, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is the testimony of the crowd to these people who are inquiring, who is this person, right, who has come, and what is all of this about? But then verse 12. 
And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all of those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Here, Jesus goes to the temple. And who is Lord of the temple? But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So does He have a right to do this? Does He have a right to come and inspect what's going on in the temple? Well, wouldn't Moses have had this right to oversee the establishment of the worship of God in the way that everything was being done there in the tabernacle with the priests, with the sacrifices, and to make sure everything was according to the will of God? Well, if Moses had that right and authority to establish it, then doesn't Jesus, the one who gave those rules to Moses, doesn't He have the right and authority when He is here on earth in human flesh to come to the temple that He has established by His own authority and power to examine it and then to purify it, to purge it from the corruptions that have entered into it. And this is what He's doing. He's both purifying it right, by removing the corruptions and then He will establish True worship, right? True worship and those things, those activities that should be taking place in the temple. So he rejects and exposes that which is false and sinful, right? The false sinful practices that are taking place in the temple. And this is a necessary part of the ministry, right? That there must be the rejection and the exposure of what is false and the need for purification in the household of God, right, in the church of God, in our own lives, whenever there is corruption in this way. Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verses 7 to 9, when it's teaching here the qualifications and the responsibilities of the overseers or the elders of the church, it says, for the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Res exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. Well, here there is the need to refute those who are contradicting the true purpose of the temple, to expose it and to deal with it in the proper way. And Jesus, being Lord of the temple, is uniquely qualified as the Christ to take this role and to purge and to purify the corruptions that are there. Now, the temple was supposed to be a place dedicated to the worship of God a place where men could come and receive instruction in His will and a place of prayer for the nations, right? For the nations and for Israel, a place where men could come and learn who the true God is, how it is that they could be reconciled to Him through the coming Christ, how to worship Him and how to serve Him. This is the proper role and function of the temple as it existed there amongst the people of Israel. The center of their worship and the center of worship must be the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Instruction into the true nature of God, the way of salvation, how to worship Him, how to please Him, how to obey Him, serve Him, and to do His will. This is what is supposed to be taking place there. And there, even in the temple, 
there was the court of the Gentiles, a place where even foreigners, right, where people from other nations, where they could come and receive instruction concerning the true God, the way of salvation, how to be reconciled to Him, how to worship and serve the true and living God. This is what is supposed to be happening in the temple. And yet, what has happened here? Instead of this taking place, there are money changers there. They're buying and selling in the temple. They're selling and doing these kinds of things. They've turned it into a market, and likely this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which is why he brings that up specifically, that it's supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations. But how can the nations come and pray when the place where they are to come and pray to God is filled with all of this commerce and what is going on here. Also, they are called a robber's den. So what is happening there is it's not appropriate for it to happen in the temple. But even if it's being, even if it's being done in the right way, right? There's nothing wrong with someone if they're traveling from a great distance. It would be very difficult if you lived in Rome and you had a herd of sheep to take your firstborn lamb and to travel all the way from Rome to Israel and bring that lamb with you to, in order to offer it as a sacrifice. And the more convenient way to do this would be to sell the lamb, to take the money, the proceeds, and then when you arrive there, to purchase one and then to have it and to offer it as a sacrifice. That would be much more convenient. And there would be nothing wrong with doing that. However... This exchange process should not be taking place where? It shouldn't be taking place in the temple. Also, there would be the need, perhaps, if you were from a different part of the empire and the currency that you had, that it would need to be exchanged in order to pay your temple tax in the proper currency that was being used there in that place. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, so long as it's being done in the proper way and in the proper place. But is this what should be taking place in the temple? No, it should not be taking place there, but somewhere else. So in and of itself, those things are not wrong, but they shouldn't be done in the temple. But what's happening here is even worse than that right. because they are not, it's not that they're just doing these things and what they're doing is just and all above water and they're doing it in righteousness, but they're taking advantage of the people. They're robbing from them. They're stealing from them in the way that they are going about this exchange process so that they're getting a cut of the money and they've turned it into a money-making empire and they're doing it there in the temple they're taking advantage of the people who are wanting to come worship God who need to offer sacrifices to God who want to give the proper due to the Lord and they're using this and manipulating them in order to benefit and to profit themselves and they're doing all of this in the very temple of God that is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, a place to worship God and to learn His will. So this is very evil, right, what is taking place here. And there's no wonder then that Jesus is indignant when He sees these things and that He responds in the way that He does. So He's not a loose cannon. He's not rash in what He's doing. He's seeing something very, very evil. And also He has the authority to do something about it given to him by God as the Son of God, but also as the Christ. He is the one who is to establish the true worship of God. He is the prophet of God who is like Moses, and it is his duty and responsibility to deal with these things, and so he will deal with it, do what is good 
and write. And he tells them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. If we go to Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56 verse 7, Isaiah chapter 56, we'll begin reading in verse 6. It says, Also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Here, even the foreigners, even the Gentiles who join themselves to the Lord, meaning who reject their idols, they reject their false gods of the nations where they come from, and they swear allegiance to the true God, to the God of Israel. And they love the Lord. They minister to the Lord. They are the servants of the Lord. They obey God. They want to hold fast to the covenant. Well, God will bring them to His holy mountain, right? typified in Jerusalem, right? The ultimate holy mountain isn't Jerusalem. The ultimate holy mountain is in heaven. This is where they ultimately will be. But until that day, they will come to Jerusalem, to the house of prayer. They will offer their burnt offerings and their sacrifices. God will accept these things because His temple is going to be a house of prayer for all the nations. It was never intended that salvation would be so exclusive to Israel that no foreigner would ever enter in. There were foreigners, even in the Old Testament, even in the Old Covenant, when salvation was mostly of the Jews, yet there were foreigners and Gentiles who inherited salvation. And they were, in a way, first fruits of what God would do amongst the Gentiles in the latter days when the gospel would go forth into the nations and a great ingathering amongst the Gentiles would take place. Well, these foreigners that were converted in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament time, were they prohibited from going to the temple? No. They were were supposed to go there. Were they prohibited from offering sacrifices to the Lord? No. They were supposed to. Were they prohibited from offering prayers to God? No. They were supposed to. And it was made. There was an allotment made for them in the temple so that these things could be performed. But how can they do this when the place where they are to give their worship to God has been taken over by thieves who are running a scam, right? A scam. This is what is taking place here. Also in Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, declares the Lord. Here, this is during the days of Jeremiah. And what was happening in the days of Jeremiah? Same thing, right? Same thing. So, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. And even this happens in many churches as well. The churches are themselves dens of robbers. They're robbing from the people because they're taking their money and they're giving them nothing in return for it. They're not giving them any spiritual benefit. They're not teaching to them the Word of God, the way that it ought to be taught. And this is theft, thievery, doing it for sordid gain. Okay, so 
this happens and it is common and we must mitigate against it. Also, this uh, John chapter 2 verses 13 to 22, we have what I think is at the beginning of his ministry, <clears throat> Jesus cleansed the temple and then at the end of his ministry, he does it again. Okay, so I take it that there were two cleansings. The John cleansing of John 2 at the beginning of his uh, earthly ministry and then the one in Matthew is at the end of his earthly ministry. John 2, 13. And that he would cleanse it, and then that they would go back and do the same thing again, shouldn't be surprising to us, okay? He's doing it as a symbol and as a type of who he is and his authority, but that they don't respect him or care, so they go right back to their old ways. John 2, 13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. He made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then Jesus said, Then the Jews said to him, What sign do you do? Uh, do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So there... Um, Jesus did this cleansing of the temple, driving them out uh, in this way. Another cross-reference for us to consider would be Nehemiah. Nehemiah also had to cleanse the temple. So this isn't something that was unique only to Jesus, but also Nehemiah with the authority granted to him. had to throw Tobiah out of the temple. Nehemiah 13, 4 says, Now prior to this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him, where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. And I came to Jerusalem and learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. It was very displeasing to me. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. Then I gave an order and they cleansed the room. And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense." So here you see how quickly things can go uh, from good to bad, right? When Nehemiah, when they rededicated and reestablished the temple, which was rebuilt during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and in their lifetime it already had gone to this, where they had this Tobiah had a room that he was staying in in the temple, right? Who is this guy and why is he there? That's what Nehemiah wanted to know and he wouldn't have it. So that the ministry was suffering because of the presence of, 
of this uh, bum, right, who was there in the temple. And so Nehemiah had him and his goods thrown out and cleansed it and then put the things there that needed to be there so that the ministry and the service of the temple could be performed in the proper fashion, in the way that it needed to be done. Okay, then one last cross-reference would be Haggai. Haggai, which is in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 to 9. Haggai 2, verses 6 to 9. And Haggai, the whole prophecy of this book is a uh, rebuke against the people of Israel, the exiles who have returned uh, after the Babylonian exile because they've not rebuilt the temple. That they, they were slack on it. They got frustrated. They became discouraged. They started, but then they didn't finish. And Haggai is rebuking them because of the fact that they're, being, uh, they're not doing what they need to do. They need to take courage and rebuild the temple and not be... Uh, overwhelmed by discouragement and by the threats and taunts of the evildoers who are trying to keep them from doing the will of God. So Haggai is promoting it. And here in the encouragement, he says this, verse 6, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of the temple will be greater than the former glory, meaning the latter glory will be greater than the glory of Solomon's temple. Though Solomon's temple, in terms of the outward adornments, was far superior to the temple that was built during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. So then in what way is the glory of this temple going to exceed the glory of Solomon's temple? That's the answer. During Solomon's day, the Christ never came in human flesh and visited the temple. But during the days when this temple exists, though it does have a renovation. Later it's called Herod's Temple because of the renovations he did. But the renovations were done on the temple built during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. And this is the temple that the Christ came and was there and visited visibly, physically in His own presence when He cleansed the temple. And that glory is greater than all of the gold or the outward adornments that accompanied the glory of Solomon's temple. And here is this being fulfilled as well because Jesus is here in the temple cleansing the temple and then also notice what He does in verse 14. The blind and lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. He is performing true ministry, right? True ministry, not this false ministry. He's not robbing people. He's not stealing from them. He's not telling them, if you come here and give me $1,000, I'll heal you. He's not doing anything like that. He's doing it for free, right? For free, He's doing these things. And He's doing them as a sign or a symbol of the gospel, of His ability to save, to open the eyes of the blind spiritually, right? To heal those who are lame spiritually, to give us the ability to walk and to see and to be healed of our sins. 
And no doubt, again, when Jesus performs these miracles, He's not doing bare miracles, but it's accompanied with the preaching of the gospel. He's teaching them the very Word of God and then confirming that Word with these various signs and wonders, with these miracles like the healing of the blind and the lame. The very works of God now being seen in the temple instead of thievery. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that He had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to Him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And He left them and went out of the city and spent the night uh, in Bethany. Here, there's always going to be the naysayers and the critics, right? Even when miracles are being done, true miracles of God, the blind seeing, the lame walking, they are accusing Him. They are coming and trying to throw cold water on the whole situation. Everyone is, is, is extolling and glorifying God. But here they come in order to resist, to reject, to try to undermine the very things of God. They are indignant with Him at what is taking place, the chief priests and the scribes, the ones who should be most supportive of His work. They're the teachers of the Bible. They're the ones who have the position of authority. They are the managers that God, the stewards, that He has left over His vineyard. And yet instead of giving homage to the Son of God, they are subverting Him. And ultimately they're doing this because who do they hate? They hate God and they hate His Christ and they hate the true worship of God. All of these things they hate and they despise. Though they say that they're very concerned about it, right? Isn't that what they're giving the pretense of? By telling Him to rebuke His disciples and these people for what they're... They're acting like they're concerned that God's name is being blasphemed. But God's name isn't being blasphemed. They're the ones blaspheming the name of God. They're taking God's name in vain by trying to use the name of God to stop the very work of God, the good thing that God is doing in their midst, which is the glorifying of His Son. Because when the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified, right? It all goes together. And they're trying to prohibit this in the name of God. In the name of God, they're undermining God. They're detracting from the worship of God, from the glory of God, from the worship of of God, all these things they are doing. So they are indignant. Because the children are saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. They're praising God. They're giving glory to God because of what they are seeing as the evidence that He is indeed the Christ, the Son of David, the long-expected Messiah who will come and who will deliver us. So they say to Him, Do you hear what these children are saying? You need to stop them. You need to stop your disciples. Stop these people from saying these things. But Jesus silences them and says, I, yes, I do hear what they're saying. And have you never read? Right? You are the scribes and Pharisees. You're the teachers of the Bible. You're the experts in the law. Then what does this mean? Right? Don't you know the Scriptures that it says this? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. This is a quote that we're familiar with from Hebrews chapter 2. Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8, they are, uh, he is quoting from, which is also a messianic psalm. 
and that one of the things that would happen when the Messiah appeared is that God would establish praise through the mouths of infants and nursing babes. And by infants and nursing babes, he means it in the spiritual sense, in the spiritual sense. Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. From the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands, and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There, this passage was quoted in Hebrews chapter 2 concerning what is man that you take care of him, you have made him, the son of man that you care for him, you have made him a little while lower than God or lower than the angels, but have crowned him with glory and majesty, meaning referring to the person of Christ. He made him a little while lower than the angels in terms of his humanity, in terms of his suffering and his humiliation, but now he has exalted him to a position of highest honor and put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, when the Christ would appear, one of the things that would be true is that out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, God would establish strength. That there would be praise that would come from men in order to silence the adversaries, the enemies of God, to make the revengeful cease. Well, these are the enemies of God. They are the revengeful. They are the adversaries of God. And yet, what is happening to their indignant protest against the glory of God? It is being drowned out by the praise of the children, of the infants and the nursing babes, who are shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And it is drowning out their criticisms and giving strength to Christ, encouragement to Christ to fulfill and to accomplish all that God has called him to do. Okay, so that puts an end to those people. And then he leaves there and goes to Bethany and he spends the night there in Bethany, which was common here in, we'll see this, he comes back and forth into Jerusalem during the day and then he'll go to Bethany at night, which is just a couple of miles away. He'll stay the night there, with, uh, likely with uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And then we'll travel back to Jerusalem during the days to be a part of the festivities, the festival, but also to teach. And there's many confrontations that he has with the religious leaders in that time. And then he'll go back to Bethany uh, in the evenings as well. Okay, then verse 18. Now in the morning. He was returning to the city, and he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Here, this is the next day, and he's hungry. Just as we are every morning, right? We're hungry. We need something. He didn't have his coffee. See, I always have my coffee, and it quells my appetite, so I'm not having to eat. But he is hungry that morning. And here, on his way, there's a fig tree there by the road. 
And this fig tree has the appearance of life. It is green. It has green leaves. Everything about it, and this is the season in which there should be figs found on this fig tree. So everything about it outwardly, looking at it from a distance, gives the appearance that this tree is going to be beneficial. Because what good is a fig tree if it doesn't produce any figs? What benefit is it to any man? Right? It may be beautiful to look at, but in terms of usefulness, it does not bring any benefit. The purpose of the fig tree, of the apple tree, the peach tree, whatever tree it is, is to provide fruit, to provide some useful food for the person, for the one who is hungry. And this is what Jesus expects from this fig tree. He comes to it being hungry and he finds no fruit on it, only leaves. It has the appearance of usefulness, but upon closer inspection, it is found to be worthless. And so what does he do? He curses it. He curses it and says, no longer shall there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withers up and dies. Now, is Jesus here being impulsive? Is he losing his temper and just erratically cursing trees left and right? Of course not. Everything that he does, he does for a purpose. And this happens for a purpose as well, to teach as a teaching tool to show what he will do to people, to people who have the appearance of godliness, but upon closer inspection, they deny its power. Isn't this true of many people? In terms of the outward, you look at them and you think, okay, yeah, these are Christians. They're serious-minded. They love God, right? They're very involved in these activities, these religious activities, rituals, outward ordinances, outward observance. There are many people like this. But then upon closer inspection, there's really no good fruit there. They're just doing various things, going through various rituals, but they don't have the true good fruit the good fruits of love, the good fruits of repentance, the good fruits of the Spirit that comes from true salvation, right? So here, there is the outward, but there is not anything that is useful and anything that is good. And this tree is a symbol of Jerusalem, of the people of Israel as a whole, because they have the appearance of life. They have the prophets, they have the patriarchs, they have the worship of God, they have the true temple of God, they have the true priesthood of God, they have all of these things entrusted to them by God. So if you are going to find at this time any people, any nation on earth, where God might expect to find the good fruits of salvation, the fruits in keeping with repentance, the fruits of the Spirit, it should be found amongst the people of Israel. And certainly, in terms of activity, they're very active. They're very zealous, but not according to knowledge. It is an empty religion that consists in outward, vain rituals and ceremonies. In the outward, what people see from a distance is not indicative of what they are on the inside. So what will God do to them? He will do to them what He did to this fig tree. He's going to make the appearance of a fig tree, a representation of what it truly is when it withers up and dies. Now no one will expect to find fruit from it because they'll see it's a dead tree. Why would you ever go look for fruit on it? This is what he's going to do to Israel as well because what will eventually happen to their nation? What will happen to their temple? 
what will happen to their people. It's all going to be destroyed, and what they are on the inside, what they truly are, will be reflected in what their outward condition is. He's going to make it consistent. And this is what He will do to all of us as well. If we are vain professors of Christ, if we don't bear the fruit in keeping with repentance, right? we have to have the true reality. We can't pin our hopes on a heritage, a family, a ritual that we've been baptized, that we're a member of the church, right? that we went to camp here or there, that we did this or that, that we said this prayer or that prayer. Many people, this is what they put their hopes in, in these types of vain things. And certainly there is a place for some of those things. Certainly there's a place for baptism. There's a place to be a member of a church. But only if there's the true reality, the true reality of salvation. And that's what we have to be looking to, that we are bearing the fruits in keeping with repentance. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, verses 14 to 22. It says, To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And he who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So there, this church, they have a reputation in their own mind that they are rich that they have need of nothing, They've, they're wealthy, that, that everything is good and fine with them. But they don't realize that their true condition is wretchedness, they're miserable, they're poor, they're blind, and they're naked. Well, isn't that the same with Jerusalem and the people of Israel during this time? They consider themselves to be the children of God, the children of Abraham, the true worshipers of God, the defenders of the faith. And yet the reality is that they are wretched, Miserable, poor, blind, naked creatures in the sight of God. And they will be exposed if they do not repent. If they do not repent, and they don't repent, and eventually they are exposed. They are exposed whenever they are destroyed. And we'll deal with that in a couple of weeks as well. Okay, then verses 20 to 22. <clears throat> Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. In all things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. Here Jesus uses this as well, not only to teach concerning the need of bearing good fruit, but also of prayer and faith and the necessity of believing and what is possible when we have faith. They're amazed that this tree withered at once. Now, why they would be amazed at that 
is itself amazing since they've been with Jesus for three years and seen all the things that He has done. But they see it. It happens immediately. They're amazed at this, and it is an amazing thing. And then Jesus encourages them and tells them that if you have faith like this without doubting, you will be able to do these kinds of things and even greater things. Because what is greater, the withering of a fig tree or the uprooting of a mountain and casting it into the sea? Well, certainly in terms of miracles, the throwing of a mountain into the sea would be a greater miracle than the withering of a tree. And Jesus is saying that you will be able to do these types of things if you ask in prayer with faith and without doubting. Now, of course, he does not mean literally that we should go around and command mountains to be thrown into the sea. And there's no evidence that any of the disciples or any person has ever uprooted a mountain and thrown it into the sea because they prayed to God and asked Him to do that. He's simply using it as an example from the lesser to the greater of something that is marvelous, something that is impossible for men to do. No man has the authority, the power to uproot a mountain and throw it into the sea. But who does have the power to do so? God does. And when we're praying, who are we praying to? We're praying to God in heaven. And all things are possible with God. So if we are asking for things that are in accordance to His will, and we are asking in faith without doubting, then will God give to us what we ask? Yes, that's what He's saying here. He will give to us what we ask. So it is an encouragement for us to pray. And with the apostles, they did do many great miracles. They did many amazing things and they did it by faith. They did it by faith, and also we should have faith in God as well, that God will give to us everything that we need, and we should pray with this type of faith, with believing, believing and praying according to His will. James chapter 1, James 1, verses 5 to 8. James 1, 5 to 8. But if any of you lacks wisdom which we have to ask there, which is the greater miracle? The withering of a fig tree or giving wisdom, making people like us wise? Because naturally we're fools, right? We're dead and we're fools. It takes the power of God to make a fool wise. The same power that it would take to uproot a mountain and throw it into the sea. Well, we need the power of God if we're going to be wise. So if we lack wisdom, which we all do, well, who should we go to? Let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. We need the power of God to make us wise for salvation and wise in the will of God. For, the, for the, all of our life we need this. Because in ourself we have no wisdom, no understanding. No ability to understand and comprehend the truth. It takes the miracle of God for us to become wise in this way. And only God can give it. But we have to ask Him. And we can't ask with doubt, but we must ask with faith. And then God will give us what we need.